plan for three years, you implement a new piece of software, and then you run it for the next 10 years until it feels so old and clunky that you know all your employees are going to quit because they hate it so much. That, 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 that's not how the cloud works. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Glenn DeVries was a geeky kid growing up in New York and planned to be a physicist. Instead, through a series of quite fortunate events, he became a health tech entrepreneur, co-founding in 1999 a cloud-based CRO metadata that's today worth nearly $4 billion. Trace Comas. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So, Lisa, it's subtle, but it turns out that I was born in New York and still regard New York as the greatest city in the world. I've often wondered, though, how hospitable it is for uh, entrepreneurs. What do you think? I actually think it's more hospitable than people realize. I agree with you, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I've actually funded a number of companies in New York over the years in my venture days, and um, some have done quite well. And I think one of the the things it's not known for is is the biotech pharma world. It's more right. health services, health IT, and things of that nature, but quite a lot of it is there. And even with the real estate prices and all that, I guess, is other places have gotten so pricey between yeah, Kendall Square here, and San right? Francisco. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I don't know. People uh, people are used to hard work there. It's a good place. I totally agree, and I, I've, I've argued for that passionately, as a matter of fact. So um, this is a great opportunity to bring in uh, Glenn. Um, the first question for you, Glenn, is not only is metadata based in New York, but you are a New Yorker through and through, and other than a few years away in college, have been in New York pretty much your whole life. Yeah, I mean, I have occasionally crossed the rivers around Manhattan, but yes, I'm mostly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, won't, we won't hold that bridge and tunnel stuff against you. But, um, but here's the question. So with the demise of H&H, where do you get your bagels? So the, I, I, think, I think the best bagel I have ever had in New York was from a bagel truck that um, used to sit outside the Ashley Pavilion at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. I spent several years starting every morning with a bagel from that truck. See, I think that like food trucks are like the equivalent of like answering like rescue, you know, rescue dogs. You know, it's sort of like the very virtuous answer. All right. Well, now there's all these fancy like colored rainbow bagels with sprinkly weird cream cheese. I don't know. Let's yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes. they probably, someone probably puts New, make- New Yorkers are very simple people. We don't need anything <laughs> fancy. We just need the bagel right outside of the office or the laboratory in that case. So that sounds great. All right. So my understanding, Glenn, is that you grew up in Manhattan. You were a slightly nerdy kid and your first computer computer, which I resonate with, with a TRS-80, which I remember well. You went to college at Carnegie Mellon expecting to study computers and chemistry because you clearly valued your alone time on Saturday <laughs> nights, but uh, wound up a biology major after an inspiring summer working in a molecular biology lab. So apparently that really happens. Uh, you were thinking about what to do next and making a few extra bucks as a student, working for the development office and soliciting donations from alums. The, the only correction I would make to your background was the word slightly before nerdy. I was a extremely nerdy child. <laughs> and uh, and actually, when you kind of fast forward past the, the TRS-80s and all that in, into university, um, in, in an interesting way, it was not just part of my growth in kind of a career um, manner and as somebody who thought about science, et cetera. Um, but it's actually the time in my life when I, I got much more social. And I think one of the manifestations of that, I, I hesitate to say this because it sounds too um, pre-planned, but I wound up taking this job in the alumni office, I think to kind of exercise some of those 
social interaction muscles. And so we were calling alums um, to get them to make donations. I, I will date myself by telling you that you would start the evening with a stack of three by five index cards. The basic demographics of the person you were calling and a hand-recorded history of their donations. There you go. Um, I, I probably shouldn't say something like this to my um, about my amazing alma mater, um, uh, Carnegie Mellon, but I, I think we were basically paid minimum wage, if not less. Uh, <laughs> but you had the opportunity to get a commission if you got somebody to put something on a credit card or donate more than they did the year before, et cetera. And so the truth of the story is I picked up a card for a guy, Aaron Katz, Aaron Katz, MD, actually, and um, looked at it and said, biology major, New Yorker, I am going to... Sounds authentic. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is like, this is the guy who I'm going to make enough money for an entire six-pack of beer. Guy who knows his way around a bagel. <laughs> Like, I got this guy. And, and I wound up speaking to him. He, he happened to be at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, where I, I spent my yeah. most formative molecular biology years afterwards. And we wound up talking. And, and not, not only did I, I think I made about five bucks off the call, but more importantly, we decided to meet when I was back in New York. Um, we, uh, we became friends. He became a mentor. Um, he became an employer. Um, and with him as, as uh, my boss, I wound up getting exposed to the project that actually led to us founding Meditata. So this is like the early form of social networking. Right, right. <laughs> this, this, this extremely, extremely early form. You waved around index cards and made telephone calls. <laughs> and, and, so you're initi- and so this job that you're talking about, it sounds like a, a particularly uh, cool project, organizing a PSA, PCR data for patients pre-surgery for radical prostatectomy with the idea is to f- see if you could f- experimentally find evidence for a micrometastasis growth outside the capsule, in which case the morbidity of the procedure might exceed the, the benefits. And so this turned out to be a really um, uh, a, a big deal sort of project with that wound up with uh, lots of data to manage. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't so much that it was um, a, a big data project. I mean, it was relatively um, organized, small sets of clinical trial data. But in a kind of ironic way, this was a project that was really, this is now 20-something years ago, almost 25. It was a project about doing a better job of precision medicine and urology. And so what we had to track were a lot of different aspects of the patients who were candidates to have their prostate removed because we thought their, their tumor was entirely encapsulated. And it spanned everything from molecular data. So it's actually transcriptome data, technically, which is what I was um, spending my days doing assays for to measure in the lab. So could we find the PSA gene on or off? So there's your omics. We had a lot of phenotypic data from a physiological perspective. So um, every every guy over 40 knows what this thing called PSA, prostate-specific antigen, is from a a, a serum protein um, measurement perspective. Um, I'm not suggesting that it's a great way to uh, model whether or not you have something wrong with your prostate. We've, we've subsequently found out that you need a lot more data than that. But the fact of the matter is, it's certainly still a component of what you look at. So we had we had this physiological data, and then we had imaging data for whether or not um, the patient had had a bone scan um, or CT scan to see if they had metastases. We had histological data, um, the, the readings from the pathologist. So we really had this like huge span of data about patients. And, and, wow. and the, the computer nerd, of course, goes to find software to, to manage all this stuff that he's, he's stuck doing collaborative experiments on. And, and lo and behold, there was nothing there. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this happening 20, 25 years ago, because today, now, 
there's this whole you know plethora of companies i would all say hundreds that are out there trying to t sell this exact story of integrating phenotypic data and genetic data you know blah blah all the things you're describing um <clears throat> what happened for you know you did this 20 25 years ago and then what happened well nothing happened until now why didn't it become a thing 20 years ago well, I, I, would, I wouldn't say nothing happened until now. I mean, I, I, I am sure there are a lot of people who have built um, a lot of capabilities uh, to do this in different contexts. I, I can't imagine that Medidata is, is completely unique in that. But the fact of the matter is we, we looked at, at the situation at hand. Um, I looked at the situation at hand much like I would have 20 years before the story that we're talking about when I had my you know, TRS-80s at school and my TRS-80 basic books, you know, the solution was to go program something. And, and so we really started to think about how we could do two things, how we could um, actually create a, a, a program that was easily usable. This was when the, the web is mid-90s now when this is all happening. This is when the web was like just becoming a thing. And um, from, a, from a programming perspective, from an experimental perspective, actually even during this uh, project that I was working on, the kinds of data that we would want to record would change. And so the original ideas of metadata were not just to do it online, but to do it in a very kind of configured way. We weren't going to program exactly what the experiment was. We programmed a set of capabilities where you said, well, these are the different kinds of data that I want to collect and the time points I want to collect them in. And that generated almost kind of virtually modeled a system that you could use to do that experiment. But that was primarily focus on the clinic at the time, not on the clinical trial? Were you thinking about it in the patient-specific realm? Oh, no, it was very much in, in the, in the um, protocol-driven experiment realm. So, yes, we're working in the clinic. Yes, we were doing what I guess you could, you could describe as okay. um, translational um, research, but um, it was the kind of experiment, and actually got collaborative with other medical centers, which is exactly what you do in a, in a clinical trial. Um, so, it really was very much appropriate. Was there... Any thought at the time about adoption of these protocols that you might come up with that would send patients to lesser invasive or, uh, modalities or, you know, send them away from surgeries and things? And, and where I'm headed with this is, you know, now I think there's a lot of energy around reducing cost in healthcare that, that didn't exist in the early 90s, in particular in the late 90s. And um, using data to identify less invasive, less costly or, you know, because they're more appropriate methodologies was not super popular because it might have, it might affect revenue. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the real purpose of the project was, as you say, was to, to ultimately, and we never really got to the, the final end, but um, to ultimately create what was a better framework for making decisions for the patient and the urologist that um, maybe it wouldn't necessarily lead to more or less revenue for the hospital. It wasn't what we were worried about, but it certainly um, was related to the outcomes. And you know, the last thing you want to do is do surgery on somebody that's not going to benefit from it, right? Right. You're trying to improve uh, decision makings. And I, I thought there were a few interesting aspects about this. The idea was to build sort of generalizable modules versus um, uh, sort of customized for, you know, for each little snowflake there. And I think you and I have talked that this was kind of a contrast to the approach that some EMR companies um, uh, have had. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, so the EMR companies, um, you know, I think they, they have a very difficult problem to solve because 
especially back 20 years ago, and I, I suspect now I'm not deeply ensconced in it, but every institution, every department, every physician um, wants to keep their records around disease progression slightly differently. And you saw this firsthand, didn't you, at, uh, even with urology? I, I did. I mean, we, we, I actually wound up working for a bit on a, a project that was supposed to turn this urology department, academic department, into a place where we could, could query data across everything that we did and instantly write abstracts. We decided, well, we, I guess more me in this context, to really focus from a software perspective on, as I described it before, like a protocol-driven experiment. Um, uh, the analogy I use is a high school chemistry book. Every, everybody who's taken a high school chemistry book knows that you have the bound book, you write down what the experiment's going to be in the, the top of the page, you then do all the work and you record all the data, and then you write your conclusions in that same bound notebook that probably has a model black and white cover and blue graph paper on the inside, right? Um, so, so, you know, could, could we build a software um, chemistry notebook that we could do clinical trials in. And that was really that first moment that that started, I think, the, the path that took us down what became Medidata. So as you started to, 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 to get the sense that, oh, maybe the idea of being able to bring data together and that you, ha- you made the, the decision, another decision which we discussed, was to build good infrastructure versus then tech on top of bad infrastructure. Yeah, so... So it's really actually, again, I, I don't want to make it sound like we're prophetic about these things and always you know, have made the right strategic decisions over a couple of decades. Well, you were. But, but, but there yeah. were a couple of things that we, we certainly got right. And, and the idea of, of modeling things in a, in a new way, not basing ourselves off the way EHRs worked or the way um, desktop publishing software worked, which was how a lot of clinical trial software was designed because it was replacing paper. So you, you design the form on screen instead of printing it out, but we, we resisted that. And the other thing that we saw happening, and this was um, thanks to the exposure that I had, um, Eddie Kaguchi, who was a resident at the time, um, who was the other co-founder of Medidata, um, we were able to not just look at the academic side, but we saw the industry side and what was happening in the earliest days of what would become the EDC market. Electronic data capture. Yeah, electronic data capture, and, and it was to replace the paper forms that people capture data on in clinical trials. And and when we were doing a clinical trial with, with five just as an example, you would get for that clinical trial a laptop with custom software to help you collect data in that study. And if you did a, a clinical trial with TAP, it was a um, joint venture with uh, Takeda and Abbott. I just bring it up because we did research with TAP back then. It doesn't exist anymore, but right. you would get another laptop for that clinical trial. Wow. And it all sounded good until you realized there was like a stack of 30 laptops in the office that was working on 30 clinical trials and they had to stay charged and they had to stay connected and you had to turn them on and boot them and log in. It was horrible. And so... In the summer heat in New York, that must have been really fun, huh? <laughs> right. Well, and also, you know, New York is premium for real estate. So you can't have rooms and rooms of laptops. Could you imagine the cost? It would be untenable. So we really said, let's, let's do it like the internet. Like if I could go online and buy a book on amazon.com with a Mac or a PC, um, it doesn't matter what operating system version it is. Why can I not run a clinical trial that way? So we floated what we did on top of the infrastructure that was already out there in the to become internet in common parlance. When you were doing this, I mean, you're again very early to this, uh, you know, what ultimately became the cloud concept. Um, did you think about it in terms of how you build a large company around this? How, how did you find your way to, to uh, you know, the business aspect of this? And did you have a partner in that endeavor? 
And so I, I mentioned Eddie Kaguchi, right? He was the resident who I knew. I, we actually shared a lab bench. And when we started the company, we got some sage advice from uh, another friend of ours at, at the university. I'm actually a mentor friend. He was a little bit um, senior to us. And, and he said, you have to have somebody involved in this who understands what it means to be a company, who understands money. And he introduced us to his college roommate, basically the, the guy that he shared a bunk with for four years um, at Yale. And it was like business version of love at first sight. And that is when I met <laughs> Tarek Sharif, who is still Medidata's um, CEO and chairman. Um, we met this night after work. We started talking about Medidata. Um, kind of sidebar to the story, two, two months later, we're sharing an office and, and 18 years later, we're still sharing an office. And yet you started Medidata, not Match.com, huh? <laughs> right. We, right we, we, I don't know. We've been, we've been somewhat successful in clinical trial infrastructure. We've only matched two people, me and Tark. so I don't, I don't know what qualifications <laughs> are for that. It's uh, not a sustainable business model. <laughs> although I have to say it's a very good match. But, but we had this kind of idea that was very cloud-like of configuration versus customization. That came from the original design. Tarek was very focused on um, making sure we built a company that was profitable. We, did, we luckily didn't get seduced by the, um, the burning capital late 90s bubble. Um, so we, we tried to be very efficient. And in some ways, we kind of lucked into being a cloud company because we built an internet application for clinical trials. And if you went to try to sell that to a pharmaceutical company in the late 90s and even in the 2000s and say, hey, you should run this in your data center and have all your clinical trial sites access it from everywhere in the world. These were incredibly conservative IT departments these pharma companies and biotechs had. So they never wanted to run the software themselves. So they said, oh, Medidata, we want to use it, but you run it for us. And so that was kind of the third aspect of cloud. Again, we didn't call it cloud back then, um, but it kind of put us on this path, which was for us great from a business model perspective. Wow. So, so Glenn, the, that, the way that you've, you've described that, it sounds like, you know, people were super enthusiastic in pharma companies about the, uh, the cloud approach you have provided because at least it saved them from having to do stuff or, or ha access data on their premises. But I, I wonder if there are uh, additional details to the uh, challenges of establishing a cloud business before it was hit. Yeah. I think that was even discussed recently on a uh, Silicon Valley episode. We have to do neural net for deep learning. Look, once we get enough data flowing through the system, it will be able to recognize long-range patterns and actually learn. It will be able to optimize our algorithm on its own, increasing our already superior speed and efficiency. Right? Pretty cool. Huh? But it won't be able to do that if we delete it. Do you get that? But you just said it. It requires a central repository of data, right? Businesses want to protect their data. They're huge pussies when it comes to security. Okay, well, we're not cutting machine learning. We're not. If we cut that, we might as well cut peer-to-peer -peer delivery and all the efficiencies of the cloud. Are those still in? No, those have to go also. What? <laughs> you know, Glenn, I, yeah. I, you know, it's interesting to listen to you talk about the cloud and, and, and outsourcing and all of that at this time. But honestly, it seems to me that the big pharma companies are still confused and and concerned about whether they should be doing that. Very yeah, I wanted to about, ask you about that about I, outsourcing I've... all their data, all their you know their 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 clinical operations. I mean, they're used to CROs, but they're not used to that. Yeah, what challenges did you face getting traditionally conservative pharma companies to feel comfortable with the cloud, Glenn? 
asking for a friend. Yeah, so I mean, uh, David, <laughs> you, you described them as enthusiastic. They weren't that enthusiastic. I think it was really the it was the only way they could make this work. Um, and you're absolutely right. A couple things made them um, really nervous, and I think still do. And the fact that we see the industry getting over these problems finally, um, these problems, I think, with perception is a good sign. Like they. they um, they didn't want to have data somewhere else in the, in the cloud, like the clip. But actually, when you have somebody who's doing something at a much bigger scale than you would ever possibly do it, uh, we run clinical trials for, for 900 companies around the world, we can put more concentration into uptime, security, um, user experience than any one company could do. So, that, so having it centrally has certain advantages. Um, the, the other thing besides just the fact that we can manage this thing for them and they don't have to worry about it is that the pharmaceutical industry is really used to um, what technically people would call waterfall development. You, you do a lot of work and you finish your phase one and then you do a bunch of work planning and executing and you finish phase two and you do a lot of work and plan and execute your phase three from a drug development perspective. The life sciences industry works the same way from a software perspective. You plan for three years, you implement a new piece of software, and then you run it for the next 10 years until it feels so old and clunky that you know all your employees are going to quit because they hate it so much. That's not how the cloud works, right? You're supposed to wake up one morning and um, Google works better today than it did yesterday um, or whatever it is that you're playing with. And, and so we, we really have been pushing um, the industry, our clients, I hope we get some of the credit for for getting them there. I know it's not just Medidata, but it actually is really important, I think, not just in life sciences software to do what, pe what, tech what techie people, what people on Silicon Valley would call agile development. I think agile development is the future of drug development. So you even, and we're going to get away from this idea that it's huge plans and three-year bets, and at the end of that, you see if your bet was right or not. We're going to be much more iterative and reactive to who's responding to our drugs, et cetera. So I actually, I hope, and I'm starting to see that the kind of things that we've been pushing for, yes, if it's going to help our clients from an IT perspective, um, but I think we're also um, going to help help get them into a, a much more sophisticated world of, world of thinking about the products that they bring to market. Don't you have to help? Some of these pharma companies effectively self-immolate then in order to make that that change, that migration, because the people that run these companies, you know, tend to come from a, the world you've you've talked about, you know, going away. And for them to move into this agile development mode, they're going to have to hire different kinds of people, rely much more on software than they do today, you know, focus more on platforms than on molecules. How you do know? you evolve the How, legacy <laughs> expertise that's at the company would be a polite yeah, way I mean, to our company's going to commit suicide like that? I, I, to to make things easier, it's not like we're trying to do that alone or in a, in a vacuum. I mean, if you look at what's in um, in 21st century cures, if you look at what's coming in the next iteration of Padufa, I, I think from a regulatory perspective and certainly from a an industry scientific perspective, um, when you realize that you're looking for much more targeted patient populations with very specific biomarker profiles, and you're trying to get a, a better response rate, you're trying to make better drugs or more, more effective devices, you realize that you need to be um, just, again, from a, a product development perspective, working in a more iterative, reactive way, um, even sometimes in a more collaborative way. You see things like um, the 
this huge clinical trial for breast cancer called iSpy2, which integrates data across lots of different drugs and patients get randomized in, in a dynamic way to the drug arm that would probably benefit them the most based on their biomarker profiles. That, that kind of thing can't be done without the kind of techniques and infrastructure that, that companies like Medidata are bringing to the table. So I really think it's all those forces. It's, it's the science, it's the, the, the regulators, and it's the companies like Medidata providing new capabilities. And, and yes, some of the people in the middle of those three forces have spent a lot of their career thinking in a very old school way about how to do this. But but I think because of those forces, they know that there's a path forward. That's one of the things I enjoy most. I love it when I can work with the chief medical officer on, on their strategic plan for how they're actually going to get more strategically agile and iterative in the way they think about their portfolio. So let me ask you about the sort of the what seems to be a kind of a, a gap between the the aspirations or some of the leading edge stuff you talked about, you know, whether you, whether uh, they're basket trials or umbrella trials, you know, on the one hand with these sort of... Um, you know, very cutting edge edge methods or approaches, maybe less cutting edge than they were five years ago, but but that sort of idea. We've also talked about it. We had a wonderful conversation uh, last year with your uh, head of digital health, Cara Dennis, about some of the exciting technologies and aspirations people are using for digital health. But how is what I'm not clear about is how much is this being really ado- adapted or adopted for sort of the bread and butter registrational studies that have got to be the core of your and any pharma companies and, and CRO's business. Um, how much, because, you know, the sense we got from from um, from talking to some, dig- you know, Cara and others, is it's a lot of the digital health, I mean, this was a year ago, maybe it's evolved, was still really exploratory. You talk about these like umbrella or, or, or basket studies, but they don't, I mean, they seem to, you know, people do these high profile examples of them, but if you look at most of the studies that are being done, they're not being done in that fashion. So how, where, do you, where do you see the reality of this between the sort of the, the, the hope and the aspirations of what may, could, maybe could be done one day, all this you know, exciting vision with sort of the reality on the ground, more like what John Hickson, another uh, podcast guest of ours, who I know you know, uh, talked about, you know, how do you, you know, he's trying to do some epilepsy stuff and he was saying, crap, um, to get a drug approved, people want to use some very, very, very outdated approach because that's what the last 10 epilepsy drug use and no one wants to do something different. So how, how do you navigate that? So I do think um, in both instances, from an adaptive study design perspective to put a an umbrella over things like umbrella trials and basket um, trials, um, and from a, a mobile health perspective, and, and yeah, I actually think that conversation with Kara is a year out of date in in a digital year, so that's not a pharma industry year. Like the, the, There's been a, a huge amount of progress, at least progress in our clients in terms of, of being much more sophisticated about how you think about and actually do bring mobile health, digital patient data, sensors and apps into a study. And we're doing that in phase two studies and phase three studies now. Really? That's fantastic. But you're absolutely right. It's still the early days. I see us at the kind of knee of the curve. Um, But I I think there's, to oversimplify things, there's two camps. There are the people who are saying, well, we're going to, we're going to worry about modern trial design and bringing physiological and behavioral data into our our studies when we see a regulator approve a drug um, based on that kind of thinking and math and data. Yeah, nobody wants to be first, right? Nobody yep, wants farmers to be love first. being fast but then followers. There's, then there are the people who, then there are people who are doing it and 
when the people who are doing it, and I know them, right? They're my clients right now. Um, when they get their first drugs approved like this, the people who said, I'm going to wait to see somebody else do it are literally, I think, going to be half a decade behind. It's going to be really hard to catch up. So I think that will naturally accelerate that adoption curve. The successful companies are going to do it. Well, it seems to me the digital health initiatives at most pharma companies are still often another wing. I mean, they're not in the core R&D, you know, process flow. They're doing pilots and tests and studies That's what Carol off was saying. to the side. But it sounds like from what um, Glenn is saying, that at least in a few examples, yeah. it's becoming yeah. more sort of... Can you talk about one, Glenn? Can you talk about yeah, I, a project I, you've worked on, it, even if you can't I use the I obviously can't talk about the specifics of our of our clients' projects, but what I can tell you is that we're, we we have seen a lot of that, the, the people in the other wing, the people doing experimentation, um, but actually in a way that I didn't expect, I think it's really going to be some of the larger companies who have the the expertise, I don't mean to spare like it's you know lying around, but they can put people on how do they mainstream digital health, they can put people on how they think about this from a program perspective, um, whether it's how they uh, use different combinations of data to, to guide their product development cycle or um, some of the, the, as we were talking about, new techniques in terms of sensors, that they, they can actually put bodies and dollars into figuring out how to mainstream that. And they're doing that right now. So I don't want you to, to come away thinking that it, we're already in that brave new world. Um, but for the people who are fighting what I think is the good fight, we, we see that we're moving the needle. And it's, it, it, it's a very exciting time for us because of that. It's interesting because we had asked Kara, and Kara said just what you were saying, I mean, we're talking about this would make sense. Um, I wasn't sure if the initial, what really was going to cause the breakthrough might be some innovative younger company that was, you know, out of desperation was going to sort of try to use a digital health approach in a novel way. You know, it sort of would be this great narrative. And, you know, she agreed it would be a great narrative, but she thought it was much more likely to come from these larger companies that actually have the uh, the resources to throw at this. Well, I, I, I would have thought the same thing. I'll just give you one more thought there. It's really the small companies who are desperate to fit into, in many ways, the existing model, because a lot of them aren't trying to get all the way to commercial. They want to get a, a compound into a licensing agreement to be taken to commercial. And I think it's actually the fact that the large companies are going to be in a value-based care environment where they're going to have to show exactly how patients are responding to their drugs and how valuable they are from a quality of life perspective. That's why they're so interested in getting this right now. On the other hand, though, I mean, this this whole focus on real-world evidence and, you know, evidence in the, uh, phenotypic evidence in the clinical trial and the other stuff that you get from the digital uh, wearables and the like may end up demonstrating and will end up demonstrating, I'll posit, that the drugs that get approved have a much smaller potential audience than the drug companies might hope. You'll find out which of those people respond to the drugs more readily than you would in it, in the lack of that information, and that's got to be well. A this is, a, I mean, this is a level of schizophrenia for some of these. You well, know, so these this is a perpetual argument about whether um, more data and creates you sort of niche your market, or whether you're able to do more effective trials and you're able to actually create more value because you can get things done more efficiently. Um, do you have a perspective? You know, it's it's the, it's almost the age old argument in pharma by now, right? Sure, sure. So 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 
So first, I, I, I will answer that exact question, but if you'll indulge me for like 30 seconds, I have to use my, I talk about a real world um, evidence, uh, just quick soapbox item. I know we're never gonna change the terms. Sure. Um, and the jargon means something to people now. There's data in a clinical trial and data in practice that's outside of clinical trials. But I really think that we have to acknowledge how potentially offensive the term real world evidence is. People <laughs> in clinical trials, they're, they're real people. They're, and in some cases they're really sick and they're volunteering to to, in, yes, get access to better medication, but hopefully in an altruistic way to help other people. And, and I say it because I actually think it's ethically important, but it's also intellectually important to understand how companies can operate. So the market, if you don't understand your, your actual patient population target market, um, you're, you can keep your head in the sand and, and select patients that are going to make your drug look like it has a higher response rate when you're doing your clinical trials. But it's not like that your clinical trial, as we all know, is going to dictate what the market really looks like and how, how the general patient population responds. So kind of shame on you if you're the pharmaceutical company who wasn't thinking about how to collect what is effectively real-world data, and I mean this now in the term of art sense, how you collect something that you can compare to other real-world existing data sources to pressure test what you're doing in development. And you know, shame on the company that's not looking at existing real-world data and real-world evidence studies to figure out whether or not they're developing something that's going to be um, useful in an appropriate target population. So I really see the great companies, the, the, the successful life sciences companies of the future, are going to use the kind of protocol-driven experiments that are clinical trials that have a very specific style of data as a, a hypothesis-generating generating bed that you can test with the kinds of data that you get in real world, which are longitudinally um, much, they go over a much longer um, span of time, although they're much kind of thinner in terms of what you look at. And then you use that longitudinal data set, which might be very shallow in terms of all the things that you know about every single patient, but then you can use that to inform a much better experiment. Um, and that, that, virtual, that virtuous cycle between clinical trials and real-world data and evidence, I think that's kind of the holy grail of the, the next round of great life sciences, statistics and science, if that makes any sense. I know we're just about at the end of the time here, but a question I sort of have to ask you is, I thought it was so fascinating how you were, you know, you, the, the relationship you were describing between precision medicine, even as including digital health and value-based care. Do you foresee, do you think it is actually possible to drive down the costs of drug development because everyone says, oh, prices are so high because the cost of drug development are so high. But if we had better data, we'd be able to do it more efficiently. But it's it's hard to, if you talk to anyone privately, it's hard to get anyone to really believe that's going to happen. I'm, I'm wondering how your sense of realism and optimism meet here. So I, I, I know I'm always the glasses half full guy in many ways, but I, I will try to mathematically back up why I think um, there is reason for optimism here. In, in a value-based care world, and it, it could be a value-based care contract for the drug, um, or it could just be that you might as well have one of those based on how your, well your drug works is going to dictate whether it, where you sit on formularies and, and who's prescribing it. Um, when you really are in that value-based market as a life sciences company, you start to be much less interested in, in the 
the population view of how your drug is working. You, you don't care about the epidemiological, well, I have a 60% response rate. Of course, I'd like a 61% or 65% response rate. But if I had 100 patients, whether 59, 60, or 70 are being um, successfully treated by my drug, I get paid 100 times for those, those pills. Um, so I don't make any more or less money. But actually, when you talk about um, reducing cost, those 30, 40, 41 patients who were not responding, that's wasted money. Those are pills that are being paid for that are not driving the desired medical response. Now in the value-based world, and it's almost like to me the litmus test for when a, a company is really behaving in a patient-centric way, how much do they care about getting a patient who is currently taking their drug off their drug? If you're really value-based and patient-centric, you care very deeply that people who are not responding go to another treatment, a competitive treatment. Um, and when you think about what that means, it means that those, in the example I'm giving, those those 40% of costs related to treatments that aren't working can actually go away very quickly. And so I really do think that there's a lot of reason to believe that we can positively impact outcomes at the same time as negatively driving costs for one component of, of what is healthcare, which is obviously the, the component of drugs and devices. All right. Well, Glenn, this is fantastic. We are so grateful for your for your time um, this morning. And also, it's so exciting to hear how this is evolving. I mean, I've been so enthusiastic about metadata for so long, and it's been so exciting. Mean, I think you guys have been at the head of the curve in so many ways. It's exciting to watch the embrace of digital health, obviously of precision medicine. And I hope that you're right about the um, control of costs and that it really winds up uh, impacting it in a positive way. We have to promise to touch base with you um, in a year or so and see how it's going. Sounds good to me. I would look forward to it. Thank you guys so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much, Glenn. All right, Lisa. Well, that was really interesting. It's even in the last year since Caro is on, it seems like things are um, making more progress with the actual incorporation of some of these uh, wearables than I might have thought. Maybe. I, I, I don't know if I buy it yet. I mean, I think there's a lot more. There's definitely a lot more talk. I mean, I can tell you that from my interactions with large pharma companies, there's a lot more engagement and talk and discussion around digital health than there was a year ago. Whether there's actually action is hard to say. But yet. I think, but I even think for a lot of the wearables, folks are getting a lot, you know, um, I would say more rigorous about how they evaluated it. I think well, that is for sure. It's I mean, becoming like less of a novelty and they're trying to do right. things that are almost what you'd call clinical grade. Well, that's like evidation. We had Deb Kilpatrick on exactly. not that long ago. That's exactly the kind of work they're doing is helping the pharma companies or their primary customers determine which of these technologies are really able to produce the kind of legitimate, I won't use real world because Glenn hates that term, evidence that um, makes it um, scientifically rigorous. And I have to say, I love that his Twitter handle, Glenn, is Captain Clinical. That just Absolutely. And there's a, you can get the bike. <laughs> and then you can listen to uh, our friend um, uh, Janelle Anderson's um, uh, uh, interview with Glenn, actually, which we'll, we'll talk about in the notes um, for the whole uh, origin story of the Captain Clinical. Anyway, please remember to rate us and um, on iTunes. Tell us we're worthy. We are totally worthy, dude. And join us um, next time when we'll be speaking with Zach Kohaney, a visionary physician and data scientist at Harvard. And speaking of Harvard, 
You can follow David's writing at Forbes as he sits across from me today in his Harvard t-shirt, as usual. <laughs> just, just trying to make Lisa comfortable. Um, and you can follow um, Lisa Soonan at VentureValkyrie.com, as well as on the Timmerman Report. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Aloha.